Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin in prayer, and you can open your Bibles um, to Matthew chapter 28. All right, let's, let's uh, stand up and we'll begin in prayer. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Verse 16. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic historian specializing in classical and medieval periods. He received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College, his alma mater. Dr. McGuire has been a frequent presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture and he has been a dear friend of mine since our days at college together. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Brendan McGuire. Thanks again to uh, Deacon Sabatino for the wonderful introduction and the reminders about tradition. Uh, tradition can be a very intimidating thing sometimes. Uh, but uh, speaking of tradition, uh, what we're going to talk about today and a week from today, next Thursday, uh, is the life, ministry, and accomplishments of St. Cyril and Methodius. Now, this is actually a massive historical topic to cover because you really can't talk about the lives of St. Cyril and Methodius without some kind of historical background. St. Cyril and Methodius lived and worked and moved and had their being at a period that was very much a historical crossroads. It was a, a, a historical crossroads for the history of the Byzantine Empire, for the history of Byzantine Christianity, of course, for the history of Christianity among the Slavs, uh, upon which St. Cyril and Methodius had a greater impact than any other men. And, uh, and it was also a, a crossroads of history in many ways for Western Europe, for the Carolingian Empire, and for the papacy. So Cyril and Methodius had their hands in many pots. Uh, there, there were many important figures at their time who were interested in what they were doing. Uh, they were involved in many of the most important controversies of their day in the Mediterranean world. And so I think what we're going to have to do to really appreciate the ministry and the life and the contributions of Cyril and Methodius to Christian history is we sort of have to paint the canvas before we paint the portrait. Uh, we have to paint the background of the canvas so that we can put the, the portrait figures in there. Sorry, I'm, I'm not using Byzantine iconography in my terminology, but whatever. Uh, you know, if we're going to write this icon, we've got to write the history first and then write our historical figures into it, write our saints into the icon. Am I right now? Yes. So, 
Uh, here's the thing then, Be before we can really understand Cyril and Methodius, I think first le let's, let's start by understanding why Pope John Paul II named them patrons of Europe. I think that, that, that's a really interesting thing. Um, do you guys know, uh, Cyril and Methodius were only added to the calendar, the liturgical calendar of the Latin Church in 1880. Uh, it's a very late addition to the liturgical calendar of the Latin Church. Now, there, there are those who believe that the liturgical calendar of the Latin Church didn't change uh, until Vatican II, and that, that's simply not the case. There were certain very key and, and uh, very purposeful additions in the 19th century. And one of them was, of course, the addition of Cyril and Methodius, which was, it was after the First Vatican Council. Uh, it was after the papacy had um, come to grips with certain very, very powerful adversaries in the world of 19th century Europe. And it, it was an interesting decision to add these 9th century saints to the 19th century calendar of the Latin Church. Of course, everyone knows they had been on the church calendar of, of all Byzantine churches ever since, uh, ever since their deaths in the 9th century. Uh, so that's an interesting moment. But then it was 100 years later in 1980 that Pope John Paul II made St. Cyril and Methodius patrons of Europe alongside, of course, the great St. Benedict. Okay, now it, it's an interesting, very, very interesting decision by our late Holy Father. And I think the, the reason why, it was very, very deliberate. Remember, Pope John Paul II, before he was anything else, he was a Slav. Before he was a Christian, he was a Slav. Chronologically, right? <laughs> um, being a Slav and, and being from the, the minority of Slavs who are actually Latin in their liturgical heritage, that is to say he was a Pole, and aside from the Poles and Croats and some Czechs, you don't find too many Latin Slavs, right? It's actually a, a testimony to St. Cyril and Methodius's tremendous zeal in their missionary efforts and to the intelligence with which they taught their own protégés that the vast majority of Slavs adopted Byzantine Christianity and the Byzantine liturgical and spiritual tradition, which Cyril and Methodius brought them from the Byzantine Empire in the ninth century. But Pope John Paul II, of course, is deeply conscious of this, that the majority of Slavs were not Latin, as he was, but were Byzantine. And I think in some sense, John Paul II actually believed that Cyril and Methodius represented a model that could be followed by all Byzantine Catholics. In John Paul II's mind, Cyril and Methodius were the perfect Byzantine Catholics, because at a time of controversy, at a time of turmoil, upheaval, social and political turbulence, and even to a certain extent theological turbulence in the ninth century, St. Cyril and Methodius were fiercely loyal both to their liturgical and spiritual tradition as Byzantines and to the papacy at great cost to themselves and at a time when it was controversial for them to be both loyal to their liturgical traditions and loyal to the papacy. Right. And so as, as ninth century saints, I think John Paul II perceived that, uh, that these, these two brothers, St. Cyril and Methodius, two brothers from Thessalonica in Greece, that, that they presented a tremendous example for all Byzantine Catholics today, and perhaps a, a tremendous example to all who claim to uphold the spiritual traditions of the East, that loyalty to the papacy in no way diminishes your fidelity to the liturgical, spiritual, theological traditions of the East. Right. So let, now let's, let's kind of go back a little bit and create some historical background for ourselves in, in order to appreciate uh, really what Cyril and Methodius the, um, were dealing with and the world that they were living in. First of all, uh, St. Cyril and Methodius, I said that they were born in Thessalonica. And, of course, you know, Thessalonica is in Greece. It's a coastal city. And uh, in the ninth century, in this period, it was actually the second city of the Byzantine Empire, uh, the second greatest city of the Byzantine Empire, after, of course, Constantinople itself. 
So you might be asking yourself, how, how is Thessalonica the second greatest city in the Byzantine Empire when it was little more than a provincial town in the 9th century? Well, that's because the 9th century Byzantine Empire was sort of a, a shrunken shadow of its former self. Right. In order to understand Byzantine politics in the 9th century, we have to realize that the, the 9th century Byzantine Empire, it, it was no longer the grand, expansive, sprawling, culturally diverse state that it had been prior to the 7th century. Right. Of course, the, we have to remember the Byzantine state had been diminished dramatically, not only in its territory, but in its resources, in its influence, in its stability, and in its linguistic and cultural diversity, it had been diminished by the crises of the seventh century. And of course, most obvious among the crises of the seventh century are the Islamic conquests of Byzantine territory. Okay. So the Islamic conquests of Byzantine territory then had begun in 633, a year after the, the death of the famed prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, the <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> let me get myself shot. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, <laughs> The first of his successors, Abu Bakr, had sent his great general, Khalid ibn al-Walid, first into the Persian Empire, where he wrought havoc uh, and, and destroyed the last armies of, uh, of the Sassanid Shah, and then into the Byzantine Empire, where in 636, at the Battle of the Yarmuk River, Khalid ibn al-Walid destroyed the forces of the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius and took control of Syria. Uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid's conquest of Syria set the stage for his conquest of Egypt, which was complete by the end of the 640s. And uh, the conquest of Egypt, it was kind of a long, drawn-out thing. Uh, Byzantine succession had taken place, the death of the emperor Heraclius, the succession of Constance II. Uh, but, the, but Egypt was doomed by the 640s. Okay. So the, the net result of the 7th century crisis, with the conquest of Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Armenia, and of course the, the western Byzantine territories, most notably North Africa. All right. What you end up having then is an empire that's territorially diminished. And for an empire to be territorial diminished, uh, that also means that it's diminished in its tax revenue, it's diminished in its ability to recruit troops and fund armies and project power across the Mediterranean, and uh, among other things, it's diminished in its cultural and religious diversity. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing for the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire that emerges from the seventh century crisis was a culturally and religiously homogeneous entity to a much greater degree than it had been beforehand. Instead of a sprawling, vast state that included Syria, Palestine, Egypt, uh, the territories where, where languages as diverse as Coptic and Aramaic and Armenian were spoken, uh, where there was tremendous theological diversity because of the Monophysite controversy. Instead of that, you're left with a smaller, kind of leaner, meaner state that was linguistically much more homogenous as the Greek language um, kind of crowded out other languages, it, not only in administration and law, but even in popular use, and a state that was much more religiously homogenous, as the, the totality of the Byzantine Empire after the 7th century crisis accepted the primacy of the Patriarch of Constantinople as their spiritual leader. Now, what we have to realize is that that's, uh, that's not to imply that the papacy was rejected by Byzantines after the 7th century crisis, right? But rather that the Patriarchate of Constantinople had kind of come into its own, right? As a legitimate patriarchate, as a patriarchate that had its own liturgical and spiritual traditions, and as a patriarchate that exercised genuine metropolitan authority over other bishoprics. That in and of itself was controversial. But the 7th century crisis sort of rendered that, that supremacy a fait accompli, right? within the Byzantine world. 
Okay. So on the one hand, you have the Arab conquests, which change the face of the Byzantine Empire. They make it an empire that's more consistently Greek, more theologically unified. Uh, on the other hand, though, what people often forget is that the 7th century crisis, because of the fact that it diminished the ability of the Byzantine emperors to raise armies, the 7th century crisis actually destroyed the ability of Byzantine emperors to defend the old Danube frontier. Right? And when, you, when they couldn't defend the Danube frontier, what ended up happening was virtually all of the Balkan peninsula was settled by Slavs. Right? Very, very quietly, a dramatic demographic shift took place in the Balkan peninsula, and that includes Greece. Right? Virtually all of Greece was settled in the 7th century by Slavs. Okay. Now that has a dramatic impact on the Byzantine Empire because not only are they having trouble maintaining control of their Asian territories, even Asia Minor is threatened in the 8th century by continuous Arab raids. Constantinople itself was besieged in the 8th century by the Arabs. Right? So not only are they having uh, trouble with their Asian side, they're also having trouble with the European side. Right? As Byzantine emperors, even late in the 8th century, have a very hard time reasserting Byzantine control over the Balkans and over Greece. Okay. What that means is a walled city like Thessalonica, where our heroes, Cyril and Methodius, are from, it's, it, it's, a, it's a walled island in a sea of Slavs. There actually was no land connection between Constantinople and Thessalonica for a long, long time. It was really only in, in the ninth century reigns of Nicephorus I and Theophilus that you get a, a reestablishing of the land connection between Constantinople and Thessalonica. Right? That's going to that's be important for us historically because Cyril and Methodius, now remember, Methodius is the older brother. Okay, so Methodius is born sometime between 815 and, and 820. Uh, Cyril, uh, his, whose name somehow comes first in the list, uh, is actually the youngest of the brothers, the youngest of seven children, according to tradition. And um, so if, if Methodius is born sometime between 815 and 820, Cyril's may be born in 824 or so. It's a little bit ambiguous. Uh, but our, our heroes are going to grow up bilingual. They're going to grow up in Thessalonica. They're going to grow up bilingual with a Greek father and a Slavic mother and with the Slavic language spoken all around about Thessalonica. They're going to be completely surrounded by Slavs. Okay. Now, it, it's actually interesting to contemplate the, the lasting demographic impact, just as kind of a curiosity, the lasting demographic impact of the, the Slavic settlement of Greece. If you think about it, there's a, a famous case of a, a mayoral election in the 20th century in a Greek city where one of the candidates... Uh, was named something like Slavocrotides or something like that. And uh, so, so clearly he has a, a name that indicates that he's a Slav, right? And uh, one of his campaign speechmakers, uh, one of his supporters, ga gave a, a rousing Greek nationalist speech about how that there wasn't one drop of blood in this guy's veins that didn't descend from Achilles and Homer and, and the ancient Greeks of old, right? And um, it kind of shows how silly nationalism is, right? But the, the, the demographic effects of the, the Slavic settlement of, of that area, in some sense, are lasting, right? And even in Greece today, the, the boundaries between the former Yugoslavia and Greece, you have Greek speakers and Slavic speakers on both sides of that border, right? So... So Cyril and Methodius are going to grow up being familiar with both languages and with both cultures. But they're going to grow up in a time of tremendous, tremendous turbulence. Turbulence in international politics and turbulence in theology right, within the Byzantine Empire itself. Okay, so if Cyril and Methodius are born sometime between 815 and 825, that means that they're born during the second iconoclast period. 
Uh, now, I don't know how familiar people are with, with Byzantine iconoclasm, but, but Byzantine iconoclasm actually dates back to the early 8th century. The heroic emperor Leo III fended off the great Arab siege of Constantinople in 717 and 718, uh, and he really did a fantastic job with it. Uh, I mean, here you had an event that could have destroyed the Byzantine Empire, that could have threatened all of Europe with Islamic conquest. It was at a time when the Umayyad Caliphate was engaged in its most extraordinary rapid period of expansion. The conquest of Spain was going on at this time. The Umayyad conquest of Sindh and, and Punjab was going on at this time. And Leo III was able to hold off the Arabs because he had a secret weapon. His secret weapon and it was called Greek fire. At least that's what Western sources call it. Greek fire is a fantastic thing. It, it was like 8th century Nepal. And uh, the Byzantines were able to, to torch a few Arab ships with it. And uh, all it took was a few crispy Arabs falling off the yard arms uh, for the, the rest of the Islamic fleet to sail away and, and the siege to, to miscarry dramatically. So Leo III, uh, sorry, Leo III, that is to say, Leo III, Byzantine emperor, in some sense he, he's a Byzantine hero, right? But he also engaged in a reform of Byzantine law that would cause two centuries of strife within the Byzantine church. Because his reform of Byzantine law involved a literal fidelity to the Old Testament in many ways that, that you, we might find interesting. I mean, if, if you read Deuteronomy, for example, you find the death penalty prescribed for all sorts of things. The death penalty is prescribed in Deuteronomy for homosexual acts. It's prescribed for all kinds of sexual sins. Uh, and Leo III is reading Deuteronomy, and he's really serious about this. He's saying to himself, wow, holy smoke, maybe this is why God is allowing the Arabs to attack us. Maybe God is showing his displeasure. He's scourging us with the Arabs because we're violating his laws. We don't have the death penalty for all the sexual sins the way the Jews did. We don't have the death penalty for making graven image. Uh-oh. We have icons in every church. It says in Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to make images of anything. That's what it is. God is scourging us with the Arabs to bring our attention to the fact that we're idolaters and we're violating the Old Testament law. Now, it's interesting. I, I think in, in some scholarly works, and certainly in many popular works, you'll encounter the idea that Byzantine iconoclasm is a result of Islamic influence over the Byzantine Empire, and that's silly. Uh, you didn't need Islamic influence. In fact, uh, one of the greatest opponents of iconoclasm was writing from within the Islamic Empire, and that was St. John Damascene, who came from a family of Christian civil servants who worked in Damascus under the Umayyad Caliphate. Right? Uh, so it, it, it seems silly to suppose, not only for that reason, but also for the reason that we know how serious Leo III was about the Old Testament and about a, a literal application of Old Testament law. And so it, it, I think it makes more sense to identify that as the, sor the original source of Byzantine iconoclasm. Uh, but the, the stakes were really raised in the reign of Leo III's son. Because all Leo III really did was he passed civil laws that forbade the veneration of religious images. That was all. There was no church council, that there were no truly canonical steps that were taken. It was in the reign of Leo III's son, Constantine V, that you had the, the first very serious raising of the stakes, this upping of the ante that takes place, where in 754, Constantine V presided over a council which declared that the veneration of icons was heretical. Now, how do you get there? I mean, obviously, if you're venerating an icon, it's one thing to say that that's some kind of abuse. It's one thing to say that it's a sin. It's a different thing to say that that's heretical. I mean, how do you get there logically? And uh, Constantine V had a way of getting there, which was to say that, well, you know what, um, you're actually either a Monophysite or a Nestorian if you venerate an icon of Christ. 
Well, what sense does that make? Well, you know, because when you venerate an icon of Christ, what are you venerating? Well, you're venerating a, a picture of a man. All right. So what you're saying is either that his divinity is commingled with his humanity, which makes you a, some kind of monophysite, or you're saying that his humanity can somehow be separated from his divinity, which makes you an historian or maybe even some kind of Aryan, which is even worse. Right? So you're actually a Christological heretic if you venerate an icon of Christ. That, that's, that, that's what this council said in 754. And then they, they came up with some kind of specious, convenient argument about why we also have to do with, away with icons of the saints and the Blessed Virgin. Because if, if we're going to get rid of icons of Christ, it also makes sense to get rid of this other stuff too. And um, it's a very, very serious thing. Because now you have a dispute that it's much, uh, it, it's much more significant than just a dispute over liturgical practice or religious practice. You have a dispute over doctrine with iconoclasm. And that, that lasts in the Byzantine Empire down all the way until 787, right, before iconoclasm is done away with for the first time by the Empress Irene. Now, it's, it's interesting to note, I think, iconoclasm is one of these things. It's not accepted anywhere outside the Byzantine world. The struggle against iconoclasm, though, it has a massive impact on kind of forming the character of the Byzantine church in that the, the number one resistors of iconoclasm are the monks, the monastic clergy. And in, in the brutal struggle against iconoclasm, because you have to remember, I mean, you, you really have to remember, heresy gets the death penalty, right? So it's in the reign of, of Leo III's son, Constantine V, that you start having the death penalty applied to monks who resist iconoclasm. Now, th that creates a unique culture within the Byzantine church where monks have a prestige a unique prestige that's really distinct from the church in the West. Right? In the Byzantine church, from, from, the, from the iconoclast period on, it's not so much bishops who are prestigious as monks. Right? Because the bishops, of course, were appointed by the emperors, they were installed by the emperors, the bishops fell in line with iconoclasm because they had to, but it was the monks who resisted. And, and the persecution of the monks, it, it creates kind of a unique culture right, in, within the Byzantine church. Now, the end of the first iconoclast period in 787 under the Empress Irene, it wasn't the end of iconoclasm forever. Uh, for some kind of interesting reasons. It was the end of iconoclasm for a brief period. And it was, it was the end of iconoclasm for a brief period that would be very significant for the lives of our heroes, Cyril and Methodius, right? Because it's after 787 that not only Irene, but also her successor, Nicephorus I, conduct very successful military campaigns against the Bulgar Khans and against the Slavs who had occupied Thrace, Greece, and the Balkans. All right. Now, the, the campaigns of Nicephorus I between 802 and 814 are very, very interesting. What Nicephorus I actually did was not only campaign militarily against the, the Bulgar Khans and, and against the Slavs in order to incorporate that European territory back into the Byzantine Empire, what Nicephorus I also did was he presided over a population transfer of Byzantine subjects from Asia over to Thrace and Greece, right? so that there could be a, a kind of a Byzantine repopulation of Greece that would take place. Now, that's, that's important from a variety of perspectives. Right? It, it leads to a, a restoration of the Greek language in Greece, which is important. It leads to the creation of a tax base in that area, so that it's only at that point, at the beginning of the ninth century, that the empire itself begins to kind of recover its, its fiscal solvency, right? its ability to mint gold coins, its ability to pay armies, its ability to project power across the Mediterranean, and its ability to secure its borders. Right? So the, the reign of Nicephorus I is, um, 
It's a reign where you think everything's going well for the Byzantine Empire. Iconoclasm is over. Greeks have been resettled in and around Thessalonica. The land connection between Constantinople and Thessalonica has been reestablished, and everything is good. All right. On the other hand, though, Nicephorus I had the misfortune to die in battle. Now, the problem with dying in battle is that it, it convinces everyone that God didn't like you. Uh, and I, it, it's, not just, it's not just the Byzantines who believe this. I, I don't want to just say, oh, the, those silly Byzantines. Because the, the same sort of knee-jerk response can be detected to similar events, not only in the Christian West, but even in the Islamic world. The idea was that God decided the outcomes of battles, God chose the victors, and God chose those who would be defeated in battle. And if God chose for you to be defeated in battle, there had to be a reason, and it had to be either some defect in your cause or some defect in your personal character. Right? And uh, in Nicephorus the first case, his defeat was particularly spectacular. Uh, Nicephorus the first was leading a Byzantine army uh, in northern Thrace, and uh, he marched to, to the end of a, a valley, and he found a wooden palisade had been constructed there. And he said, oh, crap, let's turn around. So they turn around, they go back to the other end of the valley, and they run into another wooden palisade that had been constructed behind them. Now he knows that he's in trouble. So they, they actually camped there for the night, and uh, the following morning they tried to bust out of this valley that they were walled into, and it didn't work too well. They were slaughtered by the Bulgars, and uh, Nicephorus I had the misfortune of having his skull cleaned out and turned into a drinking cup uh, by the, the Bulgar Khan. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice trophy to have. <laughs> Great story to tell your buddies. <laughs> you want a beer? Hey, you know, you know where I got this, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. The, but the, the bigger problem for Byzantine history, then, is that everyone is convinced that it's because we restored icons that God has visited this judgment upon us. So what ends up happening then is after the death of, of Nicephorus, you actually have a second iconoclast period in which our heroes, Cyril and Methodius, are born here. Now, the second iconoclast period, in many ways it, it was sort of like the first. In other ways, though, we can clearly see in the second iconoclast period in the ninth century that iconoclasm was an inherently weak heresy. Right. Some heresies are stronger than others. Heresies that place great emphasis on Christ's divinity often have a longer shelf life than others. Heresies that diminish Christ's divinity uh, or, or heresies that diminish traditional liturgical practices or, or heresies that are seen as impious, they tend to have less of a shelf life. And that's kind of the case with iconoclasm. The only reason iconoclasm lasts as long as it does is because it was enforced by the emperors. Right? It's kind of like Arianism in that respect. Uh, it's very, very weak in terms of popular adherence to it or adherence within the church. Right? The reason why you have a bunch of Arian bishops in the 4th century is because you had Arian emperors putting them there. Same thing with iconoclasm in the Byzantine Empire in the 9th century. The only reason all the bishops are iconoclastic is because the emperor appoints the bishops. Uh, and so the, but the monastic clergy, and as far as we can tell, the laity, were not sympathetic to iconoclasm at all. Now, it's interesting. The, uh, the event that would have a great deal of influence on the careers of St. Cyril and Methodius is the death of the emperor uh, Theophilus in 842. The emperor uh, Theophilus, who had presided over this second iconoclast period, um, he dies, and, and his death is significant because his son, Michael, Michael III, 
was too young to take over the throne, too young to rule, far too young to rule. In fact, he was about two years old. Now, <laughs> the, there are some Byzantine emperors who start ruling when they're young. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. Constans II was very young when he started ruling. He may have been about 14, and he had already been married for two years. And, you know, so it, it, these things happen in Byzantine history. But uh, it's interesting, you know, Mike, Michael III was was way too young uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, so what you have then is you have a regency which is directed by Theophilus's widow, Theodora. Now that's where things get interesting because of all the people in the Byzantine social hierarchy who were most devoted to icons, women kind of stand out. Right? It had been the Empress Irene years earlier in 787 who had first restored icons. Now in 842, history kind of repeats itself. Because you have, once again, an iconoclast emperor dies. He's succeeded by his widow, Theodora. And the widow immediately restores icons. And no one objects, right? Because icons were popular anyway. Now, the, the problem, though, with being a regent and having a regency government is who do you rely on? I mean, who do you trust? Virtually any relative is going to be angling for the throne. When you have a two-year-old emperor, you're going to have ambitious uncles who think that a convenient accident on the stairs uh, or you know, convenient diaper-changing table accident or something like that <laughs> will result in them being emperor. Right? And so uh, Theodora actually has to exile. <laughs> she ends up having to exile members of her own family, members of her husband's family, uh, especially, especially this guy Bardos, who uh, Bardos was an you know, ambitious brother of Theodora, therefore uncle of the young heir. And uh, he's exiled in disgrace pretty early in the regency. And uh, you know, he was a man of ambition. He was a man who was kind of angling for his own ends. So Bardos is sent into exile. And the question is, who do you trust? If you're a Byzantine empress, and um, you know, almost any kind of male, not only male relative, but male human uh, <laughs> that you get close to is going to be a threat in some sense. Male relatives, first and foremost. Uh, but really, any other man is going to be a threat, except a eunuch. Right? Eunuchs are fine, because they can't angle for the throne. They're not suspected of having a scandalous relationship with you, etc. They're often well-educated in the Byzantine Empire. Um, so she ended up allying herself with a pious, competent eunuch named uh, Theoctistus. Theoctistus was his name, the, the eunuch. And, and uh, like many eunuchs in Byzantine history, this guy, uh, he was extraordinarily competent, energetic, probably had a high voice, um, but, you know, he's, he's all right. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, that, that would be the annoying thing about being a eunuch, right? <laughs> you can't hide <laughs> No, I'm not really a eunuch. <laughs> but, um, but, but Theoctistus, he, he actually did a great job for a number of years, actually. Be between 842 and 856, uh, Theoctistus helped run the government, and Theodora couldn't have run the government uh, without him. Uh, they, attempted, they attempted a reconquest of Crete from the Arabs. Didn't quite work. It would happen the following century. But just the, the fact that they attempted a reconquest of Crete is interesting. It, 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 it indicates restored Byzantine confidence. Uh, it indicates that the fact that the ninth century is a time of recovery for the Byzantine state. And I, I think it, it's worthy of note. The ninth century is a time of recovery for the Byzantine state. That is, uh, it, it's really hard to find a similar example in the annals of history of an ancient state that made a recovery that was as dramatic as that of the Byzantine Empire between the, you know, the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries. But the, the problem, though, is that your eunuch, however, however competent he is, is not a permanent solution. The permanent solution is your son. And uh, as the son, Michael III, grew into a, a precocious teenager, 
it was pretty clear that he was going to be part of the problem and not part of the solution. Uh, Michael III, in, in his mid-teenage years, he acquired a nickname that would last with him throughout his life and throughout all of history, which is Michael the Drunkard. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there were basically five things that he cared about. Drinking, chariot racing, drinking, his mistress that he seems to have picked up when he was in about ninth grade, which is, I guess we can relate to that in modern times, but anyway, he, uh, his mistress is the fourth, and then drinking. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's about it. The guy, he, he loved hanging around with athletes, chariot racers, celebrities, um, people like that. He, he, he's, we, he's a figure that modern people can kind of relate to. It, it, sound, it sounds very, very familiar, right? Um, you know, loved, loved hanging out with a fast crowd. Uh, he loved drinking, and he loved his mistress, and he loved drinking, and, and uh, you know, he loved going to the, the racetrack and getting drunk, and hanging out with his mistress and getting drunk. And uh, he, he had kind of a crowd of, of hangers-on, you know, buddies of his that he would get drunk with. and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a disaster in the making. So Theodora is looking at this and she's saying, what do we do to settle this guy down? Uh, and Theoctistus, the eunuch, uh, who obviously had no experience of these things, he says, marriage will settle him down. <laughs> just, just get him married and, and marriage, will, that'll settle down Michael III. Okay, so, so what happens then? Gosh, they, they have what, what uh, the Byzantine court had had traditionally since the 780s, which was a bride show for the young emperor. All right, now, bride show is kind of a cool thing. Um, it, it's almost like one of those reality shows on cable or something like that. Where, um, you bring in, yeah, you, you bring in all the competitors. It's, it's like a cross between Miss USA and The Bachelor, right? You, you, you bring in all the competitors, and uh, the young groom gets to choose, right? Now, he already has a girl that he likes, and so he, he pesters his mom, Mom, you have to let my girlfriend compete in the bride show. Come on, Mom, I'm going to pick her. And they're like, all right, son, we'll let your girlfriend compete in the bride show. So uh, they let his girlfriend compete in the bride show, but then, then the mom introduces a rule change. It's just like a reality show. Rule change. You have to be a virgin. Oops. All right. So the girlfriend is disqualified from the bride show, and uh, the mother and the eunuch actually pick a bride for Michael III. Right, so now we're, we're in about eight, the year 856 or so. Uh, Michael III's a teenager. Uh, he has you know, the, this bride that's picked for him. He doesn't like her. He never likes her. He never goes anywhere near her. He hangs around with his mistress. Uh, his poor, neglected wife lives in the palace for the rest of her days, and that's about it. Uh, but, but most importantly for history is the fact that Michael III does two things. He fires his mother as regent, and he executes the eunuch. Right. So that's it. Now, from 856 onward, Michael III's in charge. He's ruling in his own right. Uh, his wife is neglected, uh, and it, it's him and his mistress and his drinking buddies. And, and it's, a really, it's a rollicking royal court in the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, it's, it's great times in the 850s here. Now, here's, here's the problem, then. Here's the problem. The patriarch of Constantinople was a pious monk named Ignatius. And uh, Ig Ignatius was a guy, he, he had been through the persecution of the iconophile monks, right? He had been through everything that the Byzantine monastic clergy had been through in the second iconoclast period. He was a man of tremendous devotion, tremendous piety. He's basically a confessor of the faith. And uh, Ignatius says, that I, I can't stand this. Th this is ridiculous. Uh, and there's all kinds of crazy things going on that I can't sanction. For example, Bardas, the uncle of Michael III, who I mentioned earlier, he was recalled to the court 
after Michael III's mother, Theodora, had been fired as regent. So Bardas comes back to the court and immediately starts messing around with his late son's widow, which you're not allowed to do under canon law. In fact, canon law is very strict about that. It's called incest, right? So Bardas is, is seducing his, his late son's widow at the Byzantine court, generally speaking, enjoying the kind of frolicking frat house environment there. And then he comes up to go to communion at Hagia Sophia. And that's when things come to a breaking point, because Ignatius says, no, I refuse to give this guy communion. He publicly refused communion to Bardas, the uncle of the emperor. That was a decisive, decisive event in historical terms, because what it did was it led directly to Ignatius's deposition by the emperor, the, the furious young 18-year-old emperor at that point, this is in 858 or so, he deposes Ignatius as patriarch and he appoints a man whom he sees as being more understanding of the culture of the court. And that man's name was Photius. Now Photius was an interesting candidate for the patriarchal throne of Constantinople. He was interesting because among other things he had not been a monk. Traditionally, the, the monastic clergy was where you got bishops from in the Byzantine church. Uh, Ignatius had, uh, sorry, Photius had not been a monk. He had been a, um, well, a, a, layman, a layman of great learning. Right? And it's actually, it's actually impossible to exaggerate Photius's learning and the extent to which Photius's uh, intellect and erudition allowed him to, in some sense, tower above all of those uh, around him. He towered above his contemporaries in the Mediterranean world. Photius was by far the most learned man in the Christian world in his time. Why was he the most learned man in the Christian world at his time? Because as an ambassador to the Abbasid Caliphate, he had been able to study in Baghdad. He had been able to study at the great houses of learning in Baghdad, where he learned the languages and the wisdom, not only of the Orient, not only the languages and the wisdom of the Persians and the Arabs and of India, but also, you have to remember, Baghdad was the greatest repository of Greek learning in the ninth century. Baghdad was the greatest repository of Latin learning in the ninth century. Right? And so, so Photius was a man who, because of his studies in Baghdad, uh, he really had tremendous scorn for his Christian contemporaries, uh, especially people like Ignatius, who were pious and devout, lovers of icons, lovers of the faith, but who didn't have Photius's level of learning. Okay, so now when Photius becomes patriarch, it's, it's at this point, right, that we have to note the, the rise of many of his students. Remember, a rising tide raises all boats, and one of Photius' students, who is a fantastic student of, of languages, he was a fantastic student of the Arabic language, a fantastic student of the Khazar language, a diplomat and a scholar, and a man fluent in Slavic and Greek, was our friend St. Cyril. And the tremendous missionary career of St. Cyril and Methodius would, in some sense, be a direct result of the rise of Photius to the patriarchal throne then. So to set the stage for Cyril and Methodius' career as missionaries, the other thing that you have to understand right, is that the, the ninth century was a time when, aside from the Byzantine Empire projecting power into the lands of the Slavs and the Bulgars, the Frankish Empire was also, in the ninth century, trying to project power and influence in the lands of the Slavs. This is partly why Cyril and Methodius are going to be involved in a missionary battleground between the Latin church and the Byzantine church. Now, remember, the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne, of course, had been created in the late 8th century. Charlemagne had been crowned in the year 800 as Roman emperor 
right? That title of Roman Emperor competed directly with the Byzantine claim to the title of Roman Emperor, right? And it was more than just a theoretical dispute because in places like the lands of the Slavs, in the lands east of, uh, say, the, that easternmost portion of the Frankish Empire, where the, the boundary is a little bit fuzzy. It, it varied over the course of the 8th and 9th centuries. But basically, beyond the lands of, of modern-day Germany, when you get into the lands of the Slavs, there you have a fuzzy battleground between Byzantine and Frankish influence, because, because both Byzantine rulers and Frankish rulers called themselves emperors. All right. So you'll remember Charlemagne was crowned in the year 800, on Christmas Day, easiest date to remember in all of Western history. Right? Uh, his son, Louis the Pious, had inherited his empire in, uh, in 814 and reigned until 840. Now, Louis the Pious conducted um, a, a reform of the Frankish church that homogenized Frankish religious practice to bring it into line with Roman practice, with Latin practice. Okay, so what does that look like? What that looks like is the Roman liturgy, the rule of St. Benedict, all of these features of Italian religious life, they became the standard mode of religious practice in the Carolingian Empire. Uh, Louis the Pious had some very erudite allies in the course of his reform of the Frankish church. Uh, Benedict of Anion, who's been called the second St. Benedict, people like Amalarius of Metz. Uh, these guys were, they were men of learning, uh, such as it was found in the West, which is to say Latin learning and deep familiarity with Latin uh, patristics. Right? And what they, what they executed was a wholesale facelift of the Frankish church. And, and much of that involves education. Much of that involves saying, well, okay, priests should be able to read and stuff. And, <laughs> you know, they, they, they should be able to read liturgical texts. Uh, they, they should be able to say the liturgy correctly, etc., that sort of thing. So what happens is then that uh, even in Charlemagne's lifetime, but certainly during the reign of his son, Louis the Pious, you have Frankish missionaries that start showing up in the lands of the Slavs. Frankish missionaries show up in Moravia. Frankish missionaries show up in Pannonia. Frankish missionaries even, even reach out to the Khans of the Bulgars. Now, all of a sudden, Frankish missionaries are reaching out, bringing Latin Christianity and Roman religious practice into territory that the Byzantine emperors saw as being their backyard. Okay, Moravia, Pannonia, and especially the lands of the Bulgars. Uh, this is the, the, the political, the, the sort of geopolitical national security type of backyard for the Byzantine emperors. This is their Monroe Doctrine. This is their zone of influence as they see it. Right? So they're looking at this and they're saying, wow, okay, this, this is interesting. This is concerning to us. But for a guy like Photius, he saw it as, a, as an opportunity to take his fight against the papacy to another level. Why is Photius fighting against the papacy? Well, because it doesn't take long for the papacy to figure out what's going on in the court of Michael III. It doesn't take long for the papacy to start getting letters from the deposed patriarch Ignatius. Letters that say, wow, oh my gosh, I, I was deposed by this drunken profligate of a young emperor, and a layman was appointed in my place as Patriarch of Constantinople, and he was appointed solely because of the fact that he would be more compliant with the emperor's proclivities here. Okay, and so the, the papacy, to a certain extent against the will of his advisors, made a decision to actually annul the Episcopal consecration of Photius. To actually, uh, to actually decree that Photius's Episcopal ordination was invalid and that his, his usurpation of the Patriarchal See of Constantinople could not be recognized. Okay. So, 
at that point, now, Photius has a bone to pick with the papacy, and he's going to use all of the weapons at his disposal in, in his fight against the papacy. He's going to use theological weapons. Photius is going to revive theological arguments against the papacy and against uh, the liturgical practice of the Latin West that were developed by Justinian II in the seventh century at, at the Quintessext Council, right? When, when Latin religious practice was condemned. And uh, the, the problem with these arguments is that they sort of rested uh, on Justinian II's simple need to have an unnecessary ecumenical council a couple of centuries earlier. That was sort of the problem with Justinian II. He wanted to be exactly like Justinian I. And so he engaged in ambitious military projects, which backfired. And uh, he said, well, Justinian I held an ecumenical council, so I'll do that too, even though I have no reason to. I'll just hold a council. And so he did. And it, it caused tremendous problems, right? Because when, when Justinian II had gathered Byzantine bishops at this council, they had been thinking, ah, what will we condemn? Well, we've noticed that the, the Franks do things differently than we do. The Westerners do things differently than we do. So we'll just condemn what they do. So they condemned celibate clergy, they condemned the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist, and they condemned other bizarre, outlandish Western practices like fasting on Saturdays during Lent. Uh, fasting on Saturdays, he said, yeah, Deacon Sabatino agrees. <laughs> he agrees with the Quintessex Council. It's outlandish to fast on Saturdays. Now, <laughs> the, um, the, the net result then is that when you, get, when you fast forward to the ninth century, uh, Photius actually has something that he can go back to. Photius, being the man of learning that he is, he can dig up the documents of the Quintessex Council and say, oh, here we go. We have an ecumenical council that condemns the practices of the Latin West. Therefore, the papacy has no authority to annul my consecration. Therefore, the papacy has no authority to tell me that my usurpation of the patriarchal see of Constantinople is wrong. Right? But that's not the only type of argument that Photius is going to make. He, he's not just going to make the sort of facile argument, well, the West has been heretical for centuries anyway, so how dare they tell me I'm not a valid patriarch, and you guys don't know as many languages as I do, so there. Right? <laughs> he's also going to do something else, which is that he's going to try to open up a missionary battleground with the West in Moravia. And that, that is where our friend Cyril and Methodius come in because Cyril and Methodius were envisioned by the patriarch Photius as weapons against the papacy and against the Frankish Empire and against Latin Christianity. They were envisioned as powerful weapons. Why? The, the erudition of Cyril and Methodius would clearly outshine that of, of the, the half-literate Franks who were evangelizing the Slavs up to that point. It, it, it's like sending Michael Jordan to play one-on-one -on -one with a guy with one leg, you know? <laughs> and Photius knew that. But what Photius did not know, what Photius, what Photius could not have predicted and did not predict, is that Cyril and Methodius' deep loyalty to the papacy and to orthodox and correct ecclesiology would actually outweigh their personal loyalty to him in dramatic fashion. And so Photius' plan of opening up Moravia as a missionary battleground with the West in many ways would backfire on Photius, and it would backfire not because Cyril and Methodius weren't successful, but because they were successful. And they were successful at inculcating not only a love of Christianity in the Slavs, but also a deep and abiding love of Byzantine liturgical and spiritual practice under the authority of the papacy, in a way that, that would make Photius very, very angry. So we'll stop there for tonight, and we'll continue next week. Uh, so thanks. Thank you, uh, Dr. McGuire, for a very enlightening uh, and energetic presentation.
I'm still looking for your notes up here. Mine hasn't been there the whole time. Right. Okay. Now, usual rules apply. I think you all know what they are. Just keep it straightforward. Hi. Uh, fantastic talk. Um, you referenced the Slavs a lot. Who were they and where did they come from? And what sort of um, cultural and religious baggage do they bring with them? Okay, great, great question. Um, the, the ethnogenesis of peoples who come into contact with civilized empires, uh, it's always a dicey thing. There's a kind of a Heisenberg uncertainty principle that applies when, when you're talking about the ethnogenesis of, of Slavs, or, or for that matter, Franks or Visigoths or Vandals or Ostrogoths or, or anyone else who, uh, wh whom we know through the eyes of the civilized empire that they invaded. And um, what we can say with some certainty is that the, the term Slav is, is basically a linguistic designation. It, it refers to a, a language family, a family of languages spoken by a group of people uh, who were coming from goodness knows where. Right? Uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of theories about where the original home of the Slavs was, but, but none of those theories make much sense. Uh, because the, the whole the, the composition of these peoples tended to um, change as they migrated, right? And so that, that would be true not only of Slavs, that would be true of Turks, that would be true of uh, of any nomadic peoples. That the the actual composition of the people changes as they migrate, uh, and uh, the ethnographic categories that we're using are derived not from the people themselves but from the empire that they came into contact with. So Slav it's a sort of a blanket term for all of the people who speak languages that are in the, the Slavic language family. Now, uh, we know for a fact they were coming into the Balkan Peninsula in the 7th century. Now, part of the reason why I say they came from goodness knows where is that there is no period of Byzantine history that is worse documented than the 7th century. Uh, the, the documentation for Byzantine history in the 7th century is so bad that scholars can't even tell you, except on the basis of plausible guesswork, they can't even tell you uh, when the administrative structure of the empire was altered. And we know that it was altered very dramatically because the empire that emerges from the 7th century crisis is governed by a completely different budgetary system, a completely different system of military and provincial organization. Uh, it, it's just a completely different animal when the empire emerges from the, this, this tunnel of the 7th century crisis. Uh, so the, the great English historian A.H.M. Jones, I think, is the one who first used that metaphor, that the, the empire of late antiquity passes into a tunnel around the year 610, and when it comes out again, it just looks completely different. And it, it's hard to say much with certainty about what happens in there, but we do know that that's the period when virtually all of Greece and the Balkan Peninsula was, was settled by, by Slavs, that is to say by people who spoke these various languages. Now, the, the most powerful political entity in the, the area, in that area of Europe, northern Thrace and Pannonia, the most powerful political entity there that was not under the jurisdiction of the Byzantine Empire was the Bulgar Khanate. Now, the Bulgars, strictly speaking, were not Slavs, and we, we don't call them Slavs because their, their language was entirely different. It, it, was, it was a sort of a non-Slavic thing. Uh, but the Bulgars were, it turns out, they end up being a mere ruling class over a, a vast Slavic population. And, and, uh, and then, of course, they convert to Christianity and adopt the, Sl the Slavonic liturgy in the ninth century. And so that's why we, we stop calling them Bulgars and we start calling them Bulgarians. Uh, because you're talking about people who they've gone from pagans who spoke goodness knows what language to being um, basically a Slavic-speaking Christian people 
Uh, they were still enemies of the Byzantine Empire, but, but they, they became a Slavic-speaking Christian people. Uh, and so when we use these ethnographic terms, it's, it's basically a long answer to say these ethnographic terms are oftentimes approximations. Oftentimes they, they don't denote any kind of real certainty uh, about the, the geographical or ethnic or cultural origins of these people or what bound them together as people. Because the, if you look at all the Slavs in the ninth century, they wouldn't necessarily have said that there was anything that bound them all together as Slavs. Slav is a term that's applied to them from the outside. Does that make sense? Was there such a thing as an Islamic golden age, or is that a fiction? Because you mentioned Baghdad mm -hmm. as like a center of learning, so if you could... Oh, yeah, tremendous. Uh, th there's definitely a, a, what we call the Abbasid golden age. Uh, now, the, the Abbasid golden age, it's a time when... Uh, beginning with, the, well, first of all, really beginning with the Abbasid Revolution around 750, when uh, the Abbasids, who they were descended from the clan of the Prophet Muhammad, from the Banu Hashim, so they were Hashemites, they, they um, had a, a more direct family relationship with the Prophet's family, and uh, they overthrew the Umayyads of Damascus, uh, whose title to the caliphate was problematic in the eyes of many Muslims, not, not just Shiites who wanted to return it to the family of Ali, but many, many piety-minded Muslims. Muslims found the, the Umayyad Caliphate to be a problematic thing. First of all, because the clan of the Umayyads had opposed Islam in, uh, during Muhammad's conquest of Mecca. The people that he was fighting were Umayyads. Uh, and then second of all, because the Umayyads basically conducted themselves as, as secular kings. So the Abbasid Revolution is part of a wave of piety-minded opposition to the Umayyads that it, it moves the center of the Islamic world from Damascus to Baghdad, uh, which in some sense is good for the Byzantine Empire. Right, because having the caliphate based in Damascus meant that you had these guys right on your doorstep trying to conquer Anatolia every day. And, um, but you, you, know, you move the center of the Islamic world to, to Baghdad. And uh, Baghdad, uh, under the caliphate of al-Mansur, it was built up uh, into, oh gosh, by far the greatest city in the known world at the time. Uh, you could have taken the 10 or 12 biggest cities in Western Europe and fit them inside Baghdad in the late 8th century uh, comfortably. But the reason why people speak of a golden age, when people use these terms golden age and dark age, usually they're talking about a sort of elite phenomenon of learning. And, uh, and, and learning is really what flourishes at Baghdad in the 8th and 9th centuries. Uh, the, Baghdad became a repository for texts uh, from all over the Islamic empire. Uh, so it became a repository for Sanskrit texts, Greek and Latin texts, Arabic and Persian texts. Uh, and uh, even it, also, it wasn't just a repository of texts. It was a place where a lot of original work was done, including work by Christian theologians uh, who wrote in Arabic. And uh, so Christian scholars even were often welcome in Baghdad and did tremendous work there. Uh, St. Cyril, uh, what we're going to talk about next time, his first job, it was, he was an ambassador to the Abbasid Caliph because the Abbasid Caliph wanted to talk about the Trinity with somebody. And uh, so, you know, St. Cyril was sent there to discuss the Trinity. And, uh, you know, so it's, it is, there is something that we can call the Abbasid Golden Age for sure. Uh, it's definitely not a myth. And I think that this is part of the problem with this sort of Robert Spencer style of, of, you know, facile summary of Islamic intellectual history by saying, well, they're just all anti-intellectual or something like that. Because it's just not true. Islamic history is much more complicated than that. Thank you very much, Dr. Brendan McGuire. Uh -huh, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 
635-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.